Welcome to the Biohackers podcast. My name is Teemu Arina, and today I'm interviewing a really interesting guest from Canada, the herbalist uh, or master herbalist, Yara Willard. And he he's someone who, who's, who I've been following online on YouTube for quite some time. He has a lot of great videos where he's going out there and he's explaining about the plants, not just, you know, what to collect and how, but also the biochemistry that goes into it, the uh, history of them and the traditional use and also some kind of modern approaches how you could use those and process them but what kind of strikes a chord in me definitely about Yarrow is is the way how he is connecting with nature and how he teaches also how we should kind of almost like bring back our lost connection uh, with our surroundings and there is so much we can learn from him so I'm just going to invite him right on the, on the on the show. So, welcome to the show, Yaro. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, how is the how is the season over there? The spring is I guess is uh, as far as it is here. It's almost summer. It's it's almost summer, but we had a late season starting this year with a lot of water which actually now has just bumped things up even higher like the foxglove in my yard right now, normally it's around four feet. It's about five and a half feet tall. So um, plants are blooming and booming right now. And it's it's probably my favorite time of the year because you get to get out and see so much diversity. Uh, what is a foxglove? Foxglove is, um, well, it's actually a poisonous plant, but they make a digitalis, a heart palpitation and heart regulating medicine out of it. Uh, and it's just beautiful. It's just the hummingbirds come in. It's got this perfect little scoop where they can get right in there and just collect the nectar. The other thing, I just want to share something that's really cool about this uh, is that butterflies pollinate this as well. And the digoxins and the paralyzing alkaloids in the flower, which are toxic to us, they concentrate in their wings, which protects them from birds that are going to prey on them. So it makes them poisonous. Oh, that's almost like some kind of... Uh microbiome that on, but on their on their um wings isn't it so just like we can eat food and get some of the protective mechanisms from food based on the bacterial diversity in them and uh, also other properties so so what you're saying is butterflies also use plants as medicine you know the the relationship between animals insects plants has been going on for millennium upon millennium so uh, this is quite a complex structure, and it's something that as we look deeper into the science of it, we see that everything is interconnected, and it's all about the bond between us that actually defines who we are, not necessarily the accomplishments each individual might have themselves. Well, as you can hear, Yaro is uh, he, he's very deep into this stuff, and I'm, I'm eager to hear more. And by the way, if you're interested in in, in Yarrow and listening to him live, we have him as, as one of our speakers at the Biohacker Summit in Helsinki on 13 and 14 of October. And that event is, yeah, the Biohacker Summit in Helsinki is going to be our biggest event so far with at least a thousand people uh, participating from all around the world. Last year, we had people from over 30 different countries. So people travel to the Biohacker Summit here in the north uh, to to basically reconnect with the other like-minded uh, tribe members who are pushing the boundaries of what it means to be human and uh, how we connect with our technology and how we use our scientific understanding and what's our relationship with nature. And nature is a big part of what we do. 
so with the Piper Summit series, we want to remind people that um, we are very dependent of our environment and we are, in, to a certain degree, we are a product of our environment, uh, like the bacteria living in our guts, etc. It's, it's uh, tightly connected to our food supply and our food supply is tightly connected to nature and soil and everything that's going on there. And we want to remind people that if you want to be a kind of top biohacker, you have to kind of get to the nuts and bolts of, of these things and start to hack your environment. And um, meaning that you kind of uh, work with your environment uh, so that you can also work and function uh, as a truly well-oiled biological machinery. So um, tell us a little bit about your background. So I guess um, you are not well, just the only one in your family. Before we go to the background, yeah. um, sure. I just, can, I, can I give a comment about the Biohacker Summit? Yeah, go ahead. To me, these type of environments where people come together to learn this stuff together is as much of the experience as anything. And it's just like I was talking about with the butterfly, it's that interconnectedness, you know, that, that, that bonding that really makes this way better. And right now what I've seen is when these type of uh, um, gatherings come together, everyone just grows and expands all of this type of stuff. So I'm just stoked to be part of it. Uh, I love what you're doing in Finland and I'm excited about uh, this event. Yeah, every year when we organize the Bikers Summit, we also have the upgrade dinner where we cook with the VIP guests a six-course dinner in guidance of Wild Food Chef Summit Dahlberg, who is award-winning chef uh, that kind of reintroduced wild herbs in the Nordic cuisine here in the north. And uh, it has been a truly mass uh, incredible learning experience for everyone involved. And people like Ben Greenfield, the top personal trainer from the U.S., uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, the top uh, nutritional uh, expert and researcher from the U.S., uh, etc., are, are just like uh, really, really uh, taken by, by that experience alone. And then we have also for some of our VIP guests, we go to nature, we have been foraging, we have been sleeping outside, we have been collecting our own food, we have been cooking it together. So I, I guess that's kind of like the the communal experience that people look for in conferences, but many conferences are not delivering uh, what what's possible, what could be possible with um, a shared shared experience. And I don't know anything better than a shared meal, and especially when it's also gathered in a shared way and produced and uh, understood. And I, I guess that's also something that we have to bring into our dietary recommendations back. That it's not just what's on your plate, but also how it's produced uh, around family and friends. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing how we can take this ancient art of experience and how we've done things and then layer it in with the new way of, of uh, understanding it and come back to the same conclusions. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, if you're interested in this, you know, check biohackersummit.com. But uh, may we go into your background? So you are... Oh. I mean, on your day job, you are at Harmonic Arts, uh, which is a botanic distillery or something like this. So let us know a little bit more about your background and what you're involved with. Sure. So um, as a child, um, my father was a very well-recognized herbalist in Canada. He wrote about 13 different books and had an online and in-person herbal college. 
And so, you know, I did a lot of herb walks. I spent a lot of time living in a teepee. I connected with the plants directly, but then he was really into the biochemistry and the science of it too. So I started to learn that even as a young person, eventually went back and did my clinical herbalist program and got uh, a whole six year education on working with, uh, as a practitioner, but also learning about every different model of medicine. And what really intrigued me was uh, what I call these fractal mapping systems, which are similar in every culture. And it really got me like going, wow, you know what? We've known some of this in our ancient wisdom. You know, the way the body's laid out is the same in Ayurvedic as Chinese medicine, uh, is the same in a lot of the Yunani medicine and the different old European uh, pagan ways. So there's lots of these maps that we've figured out over time. And this got me just inspired to go deeper with that. And so when I moved out to the West Coast, uh, the biggest thing I found was there was a lack of, of access to working with deeper plant chemistry. So we started Harmonic Arts and it's just kind of grown and it's really a full spectrum botanical dispensary where we have tinctures and teas and mushrooms and superfoods and combinations of various different ways in which you can make it really easy to access uh, the intelligence of plants. And I think of plants as the great alchemists in the world. And so they really teach us a lot. And so that's where I got going. Let me let me interrupt you a little bit. So I'm taking some metal uh, metal extract here. So what is the benefit of you know taking something like a metal plant and then distilling it into a bottle and having this tincture? So what's your take on that one? Well, let's take a giant step backwards. So nettle um, obviously lives in these deep, nitrogenous, rich soils and pulls up a lot of nutrients. It's also um, able to change this kind of deeper tissue into this dense, accessible, easy, um, integrated um, mineral matrix. So we get a lot of minerals out of nettles. Now, the root, the leaf, and the seed all have very different properties. And this is something that we learn with plants is that as the energy of the plant shifts from one part to another part, we get different aspects. So when we look at nettle root, we've got things that are good for the prostate and the adrenals and lower parts of the body. Look at nettle leaf, we've got all those high mineral matrix, but also it forms this um, thing called formic acid in it. So if we tincture it fresh, we get some of that, which is good for antihistamine and good for allergies and this type of response. When we look at the seed, we have what's called a kidney tropo restorative, which means to restore atrophy from the kidneys and adrenals. So here's a great stress herb all of a sudden to work with that. So there's tons of different things on nettles. I've done about four or five videos on YouTube. So you want the like larger download, check that out. Yeah. 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 In, the, in this season, like still like, I mean, people are, uh, people are affected by the, the nature waking up with allergies, etc., from pollen and so on. And they might take an antihistamine. And what you're saying is that they could just as well take something like a metal extract to to uh, give their immune system that kick that they need at this time of the year. So um, it's kind of like seasonal use also. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. What's interesting is that nettles are in the perfect season to be harvested and worked with that way during the allergy season. So, you know, nature works in this kind of intelligent design in so many ways. Yeah. That's so beautiful. So uh, you are not the only uh, person in your family who is a herbalist. So your father is uh, is, is a long term practitioner as well. So 
what's his specialty and how did he get you to kind of uh, follow in his footsteps? Well, um, my, my dad's been part of the Canadian Herbalist Council for a long time as well, helping to change the laws here in Canada, or at least make sure that herbalism was protected. So he's been a big advocate in this country. Um, and that I've just through osmosis have picked up a lot of information from that. In Canada, we have something called the NHP, which is the natural health product numbers. And um, it's a regulatory body that's a little different from what's in Europe. He's helped make that so that herbalists can actually still practice plant medicine. And one of the things we're dealing with on this planet is that the, the pharmaceutical undertone of our industrial health system is making it harder and harder for people to self-regulate their own healing. You know, plant medicine is people's medicine, and that's hard to monetize as some of these chemical extracts might be. So he's helped protect that in Canada. That's a big piece that he's brought and what I follow in. That's that's super important. Here in Finland, uh, when chaga kind of became a big thing and people start drinking more and more chaga tea, what some of the authorities did, they banned the use of chaga as a, uh, as a, as a supplement or as a food product, not, more like as a food product, so that you can't sell it as food. And the reasoning was that it has no uh, historical use uh, that would... Um, in Finland, but in Russia, it's been used for centuries. Exactly. So what what the people around here did, they overthrow the decision with advocacy. So they start collecting the evidence that no, actually, this has been used for a long time and, and still is and will be. So it's not some kind of novel uh, compound that we have uh, found from nature and suddenly it's become a fad but it's something that has been around for a long time it has been used as a replacement for black tea uh and uh i mean it's been it's been used and that's that's kind of what changed uh also their stand so uh, they didn't really know i mean some of these legislator are legislators are clueless uh in in the face of it you know they're not necessarily experts on the, the traditional historical use of these tools uh, of nature. Well, sometimes what's good for health is bad for business if if you're looking at it from that perspective. And chaga is one of those ones that's amazing. I mean, the way it's anti-inflammatory in the gut, its ability to help turn the immune system on so it can recognize tumor systems, its ability to work with um, antioxidant potential, and it's just a really good flavor. So you know, this is a plus, plus, plus type of uh, winning combination for people to be working with. And that's my favorite to put into chocolate and coffee because it kind of rounds up the taste and brings some more uh, medicinal properties to it. So, um, okay, so. Yeah, chocolate and coffee. Can I just touch in on that? Sure. Those are great, great taxi drivers. And I call like delivery systems for things like chaga. They drive things deeper into the body quickly. So you want to use those not as like a medicine, but as a taxi driver for the medicine compounds you want to bring into the body. That's one quick hack. <laughs> and what is the what is the mechanism? Is it uh, the, the different uh, um, xanthines in it, like uh, caffeine or theobromine? Yeah. So, I mean, caffeine and theobromine in the chocolate um, go straight into the liver quite quickly. Um, those types of compounds 
drive into the body fast and bring whatever's going with them into the body. They also work with something called cytochrome P450 in our liver, which um, when that biochemical pathway is triggered, um, it, it shifts the response of what else is coming along with the, for the ride. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So there is like ways how you can combine things uh, uh, in a more intelligent way to, to make the most out of it. So when I have a salad, I'm often using uh, oils with it, different dressings, etc., with whatever greens I'm having to increase the absorption of it. And I believe many people do it out there as well. So would that hold true? Yeah, I mean, some of the old wisdom um, is is now being proven in science, like vinegars and oils with uh, these alkaline leafy greens makes them more digestible, makes them more assimilatable, slows the absorption down, and we get more of the nutrients out of them. So, hmm. yeah. So what are your kind of top favorite plants that you can collect from your immediate surroundings? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> well, I'm wearing a necklace right now of one of my favorite plants called Devil's Club. And this is uh, related to the ginseng um, that grows here. That's a very protective plant that has blood sugar regulating properties. So I love that one. Um, I also am a huge fan of the wild medicinal mushrooms. I know they're not a plant, but those are some of my favorites around here. We have a wild West Coast reishi that I just love. But I get I fall in love with each plant in the season and i'm just so happy to see my little plant friends when they're popping up and so i have a new favorite one almost every week it feels like these days <laughs> yeah yeah when we were out there foraging at the last biker summit in stockholm with uh summit alberg our chef and Lisa sundgren who uh is uh, a book author on on wild herbs so build books at this is wild Herbs, basically, it's a pretty good book in Swedish if someone is interested in. So what they were discussing was that everyone should call themselves sick at this time of the year uh, and uh, go out there and collect all that medicine that's going to help you for the rest of the year. And uh, because every week you get new stuff coming out. Uh, my favorite one that I discovered this season are the flowers of maple uh, trees. I, I just love the. I just really love the taste of those ones. So with maple flowers, one thing we have here is we have the ants tease these aphids, which milk the sugars out of the maple. And then they feed the sugars to the bacteria and fungi in their colonies to, to make food for more ants. But what happens is the maple flowers get really, really sweet when you find the ones that the aphids have been milking in that sense. So you can get these really sweet ones we also like to batter them and make a little like fritter. That's delicious with maple flowers. They're they're just awesome. Oh yeah. Um, is there any plants that you would recommend for people who kind of? Uh, I, I guess Devil's Club doesn't grow everywhere. So is there some plants that you would find almost everywhere in the world that uh, people should look up and see if it grows on the backyard? Yeah. So a big concept I have is this idea of people plants. And these are the plants that follow people wherever they go. And usually they're some of our best medicines. There's things like the nettles and the burdock and the dandelion, you know, and the plantain that, that follow us everywhere around. So I, I would say that anytime uh, we disturb the soil, we have these plants that come in that are nitrogen fixers that are healing plants that will help reheal the soil from its inflammation, right? That we've caused. 
And usually these are some of the best plants for us. So like dandelion is great for the liver, great for the kidneys, and a blood alternative so it cleanses the blood. What a great herb to start working with. And usually the people who have dandelions in their yards that don't want the dandelions in their yards, that are trying to get rid of them, these are the people that need them the most. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. So uh, you also mentioned plantain. Uh, what, what do you have to say about that one? It's one of my favorite first aid plants. So um, you can chew it up and make what's called a spit poultice, put it onto a wound, and it will pull out um, any kind of uh, sting or irritation uh, or inflammation. So it can help pull out slivers, but it's more for like bee stings, rattlesnake stings. We don't have them here. You probably don't have them there, but uh, any kind of ant bite or insect bites and some of the inflammation around that kind of thing. So great medicine that way. Yeah, and it's it's easy to find and easy to recognize with uh, with the way how you look at the leaf. It's not that hard to. You know, I, I mean, no, it's you, easy. You can't really mix it up with with anything else. So so definitely, everyone should start with one or two plants to get familiar with, and also with the different growth stages. So, what can you say about the growth stages of plants and uh, their use in medicine and uh, as food? So, um, if we look at most things in life, we see where the energy is at in the moment is where we should be looking at and working with. So I call it the chi, which is from Chinese medicine, and the idea of where's the chi in the plant. So roots when are usually in the early spring and the late fall, whereas the spring leaves, the chi is in the leaves, you know, come flower season, come berry season. So we want to kind of follow the plant and where the season is, and that's when we want to harvest that part. Most roots are a lot more grounding. Most leaves are more breathing. Most flowers are more reproductive functioning. And most berries are more nutritive. You know, so that's really basic because each plant's different and unique, obviously. But um, we can start to use that kind of base mapping system to pick out what we want to get out of the plant and when we want to get it. So I don't harvest leaves when the plant's in berry season. You know, I wait till they're done. And then I harvest the roots kind of thing. Hmm. I only harvest the leaves usually in the spring and early summer for most plants. So it's really busy season here is in the early spring and the midsummer up to that point for, for harvesting a lot of foliage. What would you recommend to people who want to get more, I guess, down and personal with uh, the plants? So what should they do to kind of establish the relationship with the plants? First, we need to slow down ourselves. We're moving like this, and plants are moving like this, right? So the first thing I suggest is what I call like find a sit spot, and that is go to a place that's maybe close to your house, maybe it's a nice old tree, and just sit there once a week all through the year. I know this obviously takes a bit of time, but start to look at the relationships of who's there, what animals, what plants, what different things are in the season, so we don't just want to go pick the plant in the season that it is. We want to learn how it relates to the other plants around it in and out of its harvest season. So this is the, the biggest one. Once we tap into that in our own way of slowing down, we start to be able to decipher the codes and the tendencies of each plant a little deeper. And we're able to start communicating with them in that way of just being on their level. So that's the first thing. Second thing I do is I get people to do what's called wide angle vision, which means when they go in the forest, often we're like 
going like this. This is where I'm trying to go. We want to just slow down. Try to, I almost imagine like a magnetic pole at the back of my head. And I just slow down and bend my vision like this so that I can um, start to listen, smell, feel a lot more intuitively than I would if I had a direct mission of where I was trying to go. One thing that I, I've been practicing this year is when I go and sit in a spot like that, I listen and I try to recognize how many birds can I kind of distinguish. And when I started, it was actually extremely hard, but you kind of get better at kind of looking at things or listening to things at a specific level or, or that kind of level of res, uh, resolution, I, could, I, I guess I could say, where I, I start to recognize the differences between things. And I also, re- also noticed the same when I got into foraging. I've been doing it a few years now, is that in the beginning... Everything looks so complex and kind of hard to find. But once I went through a few seasons, now it kind of all makes sense. And what pops out from there to me are the things that are not familiar to me. That is kind of new stuff that I'm kind of coming across. Uh, and nowadays when I walk to the forest, it's like going to a supermarket. I just see all this edible stuff there. And all these, and it's also a university. I see all these things that I can learn from and, and things that I can look up and kind of get more familiar to and and then you get to kind of uh that level where you start to pay attention to more and more signals so it's kind of where you focus your attention and uh one thing that i haven't done yet enough is to taste also the differences in seasonality so what have you what do you have to say about that yeah well i'm a big fan of um nibbling on the world around you So I call this the nibbler and it's the front of your teeth and the tip of your tongue right there. And you just kind of roll things around your mouth, open it up like a sommelier might do with a glass of wine where you breathe it in, uh, get this feel for it and then maybe spit it out or um, eat it if it tastes and tells you that it's good that way. Our body learns via the chemistry we put into it. So like you said, the outdoors is a, a university Um, I think a college education for the body is giving it experience of different types of chemistry. The way that chemicals bond, the um, degrees and angles and the branching of them teaches our body how to show up and different ways in which we could start to associate and assimilate that type of chemistry in our body. So I'm a huge fan of nibbling. Um, And there's very, very few toxic plants, but get a book and have a look at like, okay, maybe there's 12 really toxic plants. Find those ones. And know to be wary. But other than that, most things they'll tell you. You know, you nibble on a fir tip, for example, of a fir tree. Those spring ones taste really edible. They got a nice lemony scent. They're really delicious. But you get those older ones and you're like, whoa, that's quite strong. My body tells me intuitively right away, this is not food. But the other one was food, right? So so you get curious. Take a flower and pull it apart. Nibble on the stamen. Nibble on the seed inside, nibble on um, the petals and the sepals, and they'll tell you which part is going to be edible and which part is not. Yeah, yeah, and, and you touched basically some of the new growths uh, of of pine trees, for example. Uh, and I've been collecting pine sprouts, and, and they're absolutely f- amazing uh, to use as it is. Um, it's great with fish, uh, but it's also good for making some kind of tincture, tincturing it out with uh, with something like coconut syrup or something like this. So you get this 
really nice pine sprout syrup, which is just absolutely flavorful to also put on coffee or something like this. And that's how I'm kind of enhancing whatever sweeteners I have or alcohol, <laughs> etc. So, so using different plants to throw in there. And um, what can you say about the kind of ways to process them in, in different ways? Uh, you're a, quite an expert, expert when it comes to uh, the post-harvest. Yeah, well, I mean, I teach a few herbal pharmacy classes and I totally am experimental all the time and finding new ways to work with them. So, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll touch in. Remember how I said coffee and chocolate might be taxi drivers? Well, I like to think of alcohol and sugar also as other taxi drivers that drive things deeper into the body. So tincturing is super simple. It's it's easy medicine. Basically, the layman's method, which you don't need to do the whole more complicated method if you're just doing it for yourself. And the layman's method is fill the jar as full as you possibly can, add 50 to 70% alcohol, shake it up for two weeks, pour it off and press it. Simple. Anybody can do that. Um, syrups are another great one. So traditionally we've done what's called a decoction or a, a simmered tea, right? So we'd simmer down a tea till it's really concentrated, add in some of those sweeteners like a honey or a coconut syrup or some kind of raw sugar or whatever it is. And then maybe a little bit of alcohol to preserve it. Simple. We can make cordials. Those are really simple. Um, where like we did with elderflowers this year, we had a little bit of lemon rind and orange peel and juice of those and some citric acid and honey. Bam. Simple syrup. We can then add that to soda water, add that to other things. So there's, there's lots of ways we can process plants. Uh, drying them, making pills, making powders, adding them to smoothies, drinks. There's. I think that's a huge, huge topic that – it takes years, though, of you getting curious and exploring and know that uh, right now on these little pocket gods, as I call them, we have access to so much information. So it's really about you thinking about what you want to do and then, boom, the information's there. Yeah. The the beauty of using something like sugar and alcohol as a carrier is also uh, – they're also great for preservation. So when the season is on, if you want to – continue benefiting of a specific plant you can just use those as storage mediums and honey is uh, traditionally used for storing all kinds of things for example and uh, some of my favorite honeys that i make have, have a lot of different kind of superfoods from nature that i'm putting in there and alcohol obviously is uh, traditionally if you just look at any country or culture they have had their kind of magic potion uh, that uh, doctors or herbalists prepared so the Germans have their Jägermeisters and um, or whatever you know, the gin even is uh, is a herbal cocktail originally uh, and and uh, I was recently in in Latvia and they have uh, black magic and it's still used for some ailments and um, so so there is this traditional use of alcohol uh, as medicine uh, I, I guess it's in, in recent years it has turned upside down. Um, I guess also partly because the poor quality of those extracts, um, but also because um, we don't uh, emphasize this aspect anymore. I, I would one thing I would say about it is that um, as a society, we have become addicted to the taxi driver. I've called these the taxi driver a few times, and it's that we know that these carriers like sugar and alcohol um, affect the body deeply, and people have become addicted to that versus using them in the way they should specifically be used. 
which is to carry other substances into the body more effectively. Give us more complex stability in our chemistry by putting them in these things. Like alcohol lasts 20 years, easy, making a tincture. So you, you harvest it once and you've got up to 20 years with a medicine. Now you can do that in drops or you can do that in full droppers full. So I saw you take a full dropper full of the nettle. One way I would like to do this is I take two, three drops and then I just sit with it for a second and let it, the, my palate just roll around that and get a feel for the spirit of nettle. And then I'll take that physiological dose of two or three droppers full. Yeah. Yeah. And also when you use your mucous membranes to absorb it, it's, it's much more direct. Uh, the, the effect, the bioavailability of many things is much higher when you use a tincture, tincture under your tongue compared to uh, just eating it, uh, which is beautiful as well. Yeah, well, there's a lot of science now showing how our body registers, based on our sensory perceptions, the chemistry, and it's more effective to the way in which our body functions than the physical chemistry in our digestive tract is. So the taste, the smell, the feel in our mouth tells our body so much more than just the chemistry itself. And we're, we're learning more and more about that. So tablets and capsules um, and hidden medicine is way less effective than when we actually taste and feel it. Animals also, I mean, they use taste pretty much to recognize if something is edible or not. And that's another skill that we have maybe forgotten because we can just buy food from a store and we don't have to look out for it or, or even test if something is edible or not. And um, kind of practicing that kind of skill is important. Also, the way how the diversity of our taste buds is is kind of tuned towards kind of what you explained as the taxi drivers that we are addicted to, like uh, to favor more sugary taste uh, uh, instead of uh, bitterness. And bitterness often means more medicine, more uh, complex compounds that have a pharmacological effect and um, kind of getting used to more bitter tastes and also using bitters uh, as, a, as a digestive as well. Uh, after meals and, or post meals, that's that's kind of uh, an, another interesting way to think about it and, and how to increase the amount of nutrient per calorie that you're getting in your diet. So, using these plants is is one way. Yeah, well, and our ancestors used a lot more bitter plants. We've teased the medicine out of the food we eat now. So, a lot of the foods we eat now used to have a lot more medicine in them until we teased them via creating different strains of them, but Bitter, you know, if we look back to Chinese medicine, is is really synonymous with the liver and um, helps support the liver function. So most northern European descendants, including a lot of us in Canada here, um, run what I call a hot liver. They're a little bit more aggravated and they have this hot liver um, symptoms. They could specifically use a lot more bitter to help cool that down. Hmm. That's that's very interesting, and um, I want to ask you about kind of um, the the dynamic relationship that we can have with plants. So, so kind of uh, nature gives us, and uh, what do we give back? So, so I think that's also interesting that you bring out on your excellent YouTube channel and some of your videos is is how we should kind of uh, not harvest everything we find, but just take enough 
of our needs so that it will serve us next year or someone else who comes across and also for that plant to prosper, uh, which is contrary to what we do on on monocrops and on the fields. We are pretty much destroying over time uh, our ability to cultivate uh, things uh, when it comes to the diversity and the way how we work with the plants. Yeah, I mean, a good harvester or good forager can actually encourage better growth of the plants around them so that they have them to work with over the years. Most herb matter doesn't last long after a year. So really just harvest as much as you need for the year. But there's so many different ways in which we can give back to them and start to build a relationship with them too. So I, I do a lot of different ways. One is obviously offering a gift to the plants when we go to um, pick them. Never picking the first plant we see. You know, there's lots of different rules in which or sort of ideas around how we can connect with the plant. So I sometimes will leave a little hair or just some time. I'll spend some time with the plant and not harvest it, saying thank you, or I'll tell it my intentions. This is how I want to use you. This is how I want to work with you. This is what I'm hoping you will help bring with the medicine that I'm doing today. Um, also, our mouth, our saliva, actually tells the plant a lot about who we are. So plants have used this for thousands of years as a way to register the chemistry of who's eating it. It's like, okay, what's eating me? How do I shift my chemistry to make myself either less edible or encourage this if it's helping me to travel kind of thing. So we can just use a little bit of our mouth to um, to register plants that way and tell the plant who we are. So we can start to build those relationships with them. Um, one thing I would say that I really, really like to do is to just sit with a plant for a period of time and just slow myself down and take only a little bit of it the first time I come to see it get really curious and tell it I'm going to come back and that I want to work with this plant and ask it, is it okay? Yeah. And also when you're harvesting, it's just like not just harvesting the whole plant, but looking for different parts, like tasting, nibbling different leaves and see which one of them or which trees are or what, what plants are kind of at their best uh, at the peak of, of, the, of their uh, growth and what they can provide you. So not just like mindlessly and blindly collecting things but also kind of tasting if uh, often you can taste uh, the soil they've been growing in uh, right in your mouth and you can find the ones that kind of have the perfect balance and, um, what can you say about that aspect as well like uh, choosing different parts i know that in the amazon the the medicine men they are uh, they're very well trained in uh, figuring out which parts of the plants are really kind of uh, the medicine we're looking for. Yeah, well, I mean, the most intuitive way is to look to the growing tips, right? The growing edges of the plants and start to start there. Um, also, what's in season and when it's in season. Um, looking to make sure that you're in an area where there's no waste. And one of the issues we have right now is um, a lot of urban debris into wild lands, so it's actually hard to find clean plants even. Uh, so, so just being clear of that, um, I, I find taking the time to just kind of try a few different ones. I'll usually go to the middle of the patch and kind of work out versus the outrunners because I don't want to stop the growth of the patch that way. Um, I'll also just try to take as much as I can use in a season. Like one thing I wanted to mention that a lot of people do when they first find plants, they get really excited and they harvest way too much. And the thing is, is when you get home after you've harvested plants, 
that's when most of the work happens, right? So being clear that um, you just want to do a few that you can actually take home and work with and start with a small batch and come back again. Also, tuning yourself by noticing when the plant's about to go into flower and then coming back a couple days later and then coming back a couple days later and then getting it just at that perfect time, right? So you start to build this calendar in your mind of when these plants are in their perfect timing. Hmm. That's interesting. So when it comes to the the kind of post-harvest kind of methods, uh, we talked about using uh, alcohol and uh, sugar as, as taxi drivers and storage mediums. Um, I know you're a big fan of fermentation. So what can you say about that? Uh, being someone who just this year made my first batch of kombucha, so I've been fermenting some some uh, some tea here uh, with a mushroom, basically, which is converting the sugar that I put into it into medicine uh, that I can use. So, so what 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 can you say about that? Well, first off, all cultures have cultured their foods. You know, just as a simple brain hook, um, we've always been doing this. Our bodies ferment anyway, uh, but really, what we're doing is we're not feeding the body. We like think that we're feeding our body we're actually feeding the gut ecology which then feeds our body in a sense so many of the fermented ways of processing plants actually create better culture inside of us which feeds us like i don't know if you knew this but most people don't realize but we don't actually digest b vitamins or produce them we actually require the bacteria and yeast inside of our gut to assimilate them out of our foods you know, vitamin D on the skin, same thing. So we are this biofilm of bacteria and there's more cell count living on us than there is us. So we're really an ecosystem. So what culturing does or fermenting does is make it more bioavailable for that ecosystem to digest it and to create the right type of environment, the terrain, good soil inside of us for us to grow a healthy organism, which is us. So favorite ways to ferment for me are um, obviously like the kombucha that you have. That's a great digestive, easy, easy way for people to start. But there's also things like water kefirs and sauerkrauts and these kind of simple ways to start fermenting. Sauerkrauts are great because it's basically cabbage, but then you can start adding in herbs and different things. We add in seaweeds where we are because they're anti-goitrogenic, which accesses um, and benefits to the cabbage. Uh, they're, they're simple. There's lots of recipes. One of my favorite books is a book called wild fermentations, simple, but there's tons and tons out there. And once you get into doing this, it's a really easy way to make good food. A, a quick, uh, fact or idea is, um, the Mongolian horde. You've heard of the Mongolian horde, right? The Genghis Khan and the Mongolian horde. Well, yeah. Tell, us, tell, tell our audience also the story. Okay. So well, Genghis Khan um, basically took over most of the known world at one point. And, you know, fierce warrior, had a huge empire, almost like like well into Europe, but really all of China and all of Mongolia and this whole area of India. How he fed his army and kept them so strong and vigorous was bringing donkeys full of sauerkrauts and full of fermented pots with them. So they fed themselves by straight up fermented vegetables that they took with them. And this is how they kept their army to be the most powerful army in the world for a long period of time, was really just using fermentation pots 
Wow. That's really, I mean, that's cool. Like warriors using fermentation to be better warriors on the battlefield. Um, and, and in the process of fermentation, that's kind of one of the few or the only ways to increase the nutritional content of, of some of the foods that we eat. And also uh, you mentioned bioavailability. So that's that's kind of another dimension of it, isn't it? It's It's a huge piece of it. And once we start to realize that we're an ecosystem and that we're feeding this ecosystem, then we realize how making things bioavailable and assimilatable for this ecosystem is is the most important thing that we can possibly do for our bodies. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to fermentation, like what, what should people start with? I, I For me, it's kind of sounded a little bit like difficult and complex and how do you know if it's contaminated or not? But in the end, uh, it's not that hard to learn. But uh, where should people start? Well, where you started with kombucha is an easy place to start because you don't need very much for that. Um, the biggest one for me has always been uh, sauerkrauts, but there's something in Japan called a sikamono, and it's a 24-hour sauerkraut or 24-hour ferment. This is really, really easy. So people can start experimenting, and if it's not tasting good after 24 hours, you know you did it wrong, right? So it's an easy like, oh, okay, that didn't work. This could work. Um, it takes some time to get them good. But we like we ferment all kinds of things. Like right now, this year we got fermented parsnips, rhubarb, um, even fermented onions. We've done fermented cabbages already. We're starting to like create all these different kind of ferments. Zucchinis, they're great. We'll dehydrate a big batch of zucchinis and then rehydrate them, add some whey and a little bit of um, like a yeast starter, and then boom, make a make a 24-hour sauerkraut. Wow. My uh, co-author, Jakko Halmettoja, who is uh, he's, he's our herbalist and nutrition specialist, he he likes to use like existing plants, like uh, maybe a stem of, um, of, a, of a, let's say, blackcurrant uh, bush to start uh, a fermentation process because there's specific bacteria that grows in specific plants. Uh, so you can kind of bring... Uh, just like a stem of a specific plant and throw it into a jar and see what's come out of it. Well, that's the tannins, right? The, there's there's um, acids and tannins that are both really important to a lot of ferments. So citric acid is commonly used or like oak or these kind of tannins when we're making uh, fermented beverages like meads and wines uh, and that type of thing. I really like making mead out of honey. I think that's one of my favorites. Um, it's super fun. Last year I made about two or three dozen meads and I just made these small like jug meads, right? Like not a huge amount, but just like enough that I could easily harvest all the huckleberries or I easily harvest the elderflowers or easily harvest a different plant and then make different types of meads. And really it's just a bit of honey and um, sterilized environment. But then we add in those tannins, which could be the bark of a tree, like your current bush and a little bit of citrus or citric acid and a yeast starter and it's not hard. Once we've done it a few times, we're like, wow, it takes me 15 minutes to make a mead. Hmm. And you get the uh, beneficial probiotics in that process. So people use a lot of money on supplementation with probiotics, for example. And uh, uh, while they could save a lot by just like eating more fermented foods. On their yeah. And probiotics, in my opinion, are the worst way to spend your money. And the reason why is because these are like 
wimpy yuppies that you send into a gang-filled neighborhood, which is your gut. They get mugged and robbed. Like sauerkrauts are like sent in with a backpack full of gear, ready to go, build camp, fortify, and create a real nice ecosystem out of this, you know, gang-filled neighborhood. So um, most of the the like uh, probiotics you get, they've been whipped around a centrifuge, stripped away from their food source, stuffed in a capsule, and there might be billions of them, but they're they're just wimpy. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So um I mean this this is super interesting all of this and we could go on for ages and uh, uh I'm just like looking at the time here so so kind of want to want to slowly come to a close here but um if you would uh s- send a few bits uh to anyone who kind of grasped uh that hey this is cool stuff I want to I want to learn more uh what's your recommendation like what kind of methods, tools, guides, uh, whatever uh, they should seek out uh, to get themselves more familiar with this stuff, so that they don't poison themselves with the wrong plants, doing something stupid in the in the backyard. Well, take it slow. First off, um, it's really overwhelming. Like you kind of mentioned at first, when you first go out there, like wow, there's so much. Uh, know that this is something that you're doing over a lifetime. Right. This is not something that comes overnight. Uh, I I tell people start with like four or five plants. Use the the mindset of an innocent child. Be really curious. Explore them. Feel them. Smell them. Check them out. Once you've done that, go home and read about them, and then figure that out. You know. So take time. Um, dedicate a bit of time to the learning of the art of connecting with the natural world, and then it becomes really intuitive and easy and you can take it in little chunk time in that sense. That's my my first recommendation. Get a field guide for the area you live in. You know, start with that too. Every good field guide has all the toxic plants in it. Once you've figured out that this is not one of those toxic plants, then you can start to play and feel really safe about it. The other thing is is join some of these groups online. Um like there's lots of groups now where there's plant ID things. One of my favorites is Ancestral Plants on Facebook, or you know, there's a few different other groups like that where you can just tap into a community of other like-minded plant people. Just like this uh, event that you guys are doing in Helsinki, which um, you know, I'm really excited about, the idea of people coming together to learn this stuff together. So uh, come to some lectures, go to some different herb gatherings, just get yourself completely submersed in this world of plant experience. And there's, just so you know, there's hundreds of thousands of other people like you that want to connect with plant medicine and realize that this is our ancestral path. This is people's medicine. This is free, but we've got to take the time to educate ourselves and deepen our connection in order to really make any value out of it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely so well well put. Well put. Uh, and Biker Summit is one of the best places to start. Also, if, if, if just like not just this thing is of your interest, but also uh, improving physical performance, using the latest gadgets and technologies, measuring yourself, taking blood tests, doing intravenous treatments, uh, whatever, you know, if you want to put an implant on yourself, that's also possible. But uh, the nature is, is the one that we should definitely reconnect. And that's what we are bringing on the on the plate or the table as well and uh, um, 
I mean, I'm looking so much forward to learning more about um, uh, what what you know. And you're also uh, planning to organize a little workshop. So if anyone wants to kind of with more time go to nature with Yarrow uh, during the Bakker Summit, there are some days around it when it's possible. We'll send more information about that uh, later. So so sign up to the bikersummit.com newsletter and uh, check out the biohackingbook.com, the bikers handbook. So we're sending out information when those opportunities come along. And um, is there anything specific that we will have in storage for autumn? So, I mean, it's it's kind of mushroom season. Oh, I'm excited about mushroom season in Finland. I really am. Um, I know so many of the mushrooms here and I know that there's a similar ecosystems. So I'm kind of excited just to explore that, but also it's root season, right? So this is the time of abundance is fall, right? Fall is abundance. It's when all the harvest comes in and where all the chi goes back down to the roots of the plant. So everything they've created throughout the season of the summer is now tapped into those roots. And what we know about roots is that some of the best medicines are root medicines. Some of the deepest, most powerful adrenal tonics and stress modulators are in the roots. So we're going to explore some of those. We're also going to explore this idea of how to connect to nature and how to deepen our sensory perception with the plants and build relationships with them. So all that I'm excited to share, um, as well as just to be part of this event because it takes a collaborative village to really uh, raise our awareness. So, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, what I did uh, last year, I dig up some roots of Valeriana uh, in the end of the season. And and uh, that's one of the best kind of sleep medicines you can have. Uh, so there's so much so much out there that people can learn that the you know the pharmacy is free. It's out there. You know that you just dig it up and it's uh, it works for you. As well as uh, the food, uh, it becomes so much cheaper uh, during the season in spring and and summer uh, to collect some of these herbs. And then if you put the effort into ferment and store them properly, you can feed yourself for the rest of the year and with that money you can invest that on something else uh, than, than uh, uh, feeding uh, the, the pockets of uh, large food supermarket chains uh, that are not necessarily producing the best quality of food uh, which is already growing around us. So uh, with that, uh, Yara, what are kind of the top recommendations that you have learned on your path that have had the biggest impact in your health and well-being that you would recommend everyone to look into. It doesn't necessarily have to be anything about herbalism, but uh, I assume some of it might be. So kind of what are the, kind of if you would be teaching some of these things to your offspring, um, kind of uh, fatter, uh, your, your uh, parental advice, you know, pay attention to these things. So what would you go for? I mean, we've touched on some of them already in that sense of um, being curious about the world around you. Um, to explore it deeper, um, to try as many different types of plants and things that you can so that you can educate your body at a deeper level. Uh, with my kids, we grow a garden specifically for them to be foragers so they can get out. And kids are amazing at being able to uh, decipher things with their taste buds as well as they're really curious. Like I teach at my kids' school a herb walk a couple times a year and once they know the plants, they just get so excited about working with them. So um, 
The other thing is, is that it's not that long ago that we used to feed our entire selves out of our ecosystems. You know, uh, it's, it's maybe only a few hundred generations. So our bodies were trained to do this. So just rewiring the way in which we work with our bodies, learning our taste buds better. These are huge, huge aspects. Like you said about the bitter flavor, getting used to different types of flavors. Each different flavor triggers different responses in the body and simulates different aspects of our chemistry. So that, as well as the ferments that we talked a little bit about, those are some of the big ones that I'm really into. Uh, but the other thing is, is anytime you go anywhere new, try their culture out, you know, check out how they work with it. And this teaches your body again, think of yourself as uh, like putting yourself through college education is giving yourself more experiences, deepening your connections, and then also do this with a friend because one of the best things about harvesting plants is not just the medicine they have, but the healing experience you get from being in the woods and being with other community in that way. So those are some of the biggest things I would give as takeaways to just exploring uh, the world and getting curious and having fun with it. Oh, yeah. That's so well put. So considering nature as a university that you haven't went to necessarily yet. So you have all you have done all the books and you have done all the courses and you have, you know, maybe you have a career and all that. And uh, while you've been going through all that, being busy, uh, there is another university out there, nature, uh, ready to help you out and uh, educate you about uh, balanced, healthy living and uh, to basically produce yourself food and medicine, but also a new type of relationship with your surroundings. So I, very few people wouldn't appreciate a beautiful landscape. And now when you see it in such a detail uh, as Yarrow can see it, that's a real gift. Uh, and it's, it's a great honor to have you in Helsinki at the Bikers Summit. So if anyone's interested, come along. We still have our early bird tickets discount. Uh, so the best best time and best best price is available right now to book those and, and get your flights sorted out, etc. and coming over to Finland. It's not just, you know, all these plant medicine lectures and, and, and foraging and upgrade dinners and all that that we are doing, but we, we will also have the thermogenic spa. So there's going to be a wood-heated sauna. There's going to be a, a, a hot tub. There's going to be a cold thermogenesis pool. Uh, there's going to be infrared sauna. There's going to be all these different forms through which we can experience nature in a very direct way. And those have become very popular in the biohacking community for enhancing immune system function and general health and well-being and, 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 and basically bring down inflammation and increasing cognitive performance and all that. So there is a completely new dimension to nature that caters to modern man uh, who wants to perform and uh, kick ass and you know, perform physically, mentally, and, and also live a long life, being able to do what you love. So definitely, this is an aspect you should definitely learn about. So um, thank you so much, Yaro, for the interview. And uh, I, I, I'm so stoked. I'm so much looking forward to having you here. And uh, great to have you on the show as well. Thank you. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to come and um, connect in with you. And like, just to reiterate what you said, a lot of that biohacking stuff is is top notch. You know, we're learning how to decipher the codes of the human experience and do it in a better way. I love those cold showers. You know, I'm a huge fan of 
ice dipping. And so when I'm not at the Biohacker Summit, I would rather be foraging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great. Thank Jump you so much, Errol. All right. All right. Bye-bye.